Hello, Pilates lovers. Welcome to All Things Pilates. I'm Darian Gold. And you twist. Bring the pedal up slowly. Very long. And a one. We're dying. Keep going. You're almost done. And five. And six. And seven. Yes, girl. The starting point of Alex Dent's professional journey was the quote from Krishnamurti, it is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. In today's episode, you'll learn about forward head posture, why it happens and what you can do about it. Many patients come to Alex for musculoskeletal and digestive issues as well as learning more about how to improve their emotional health. He uses a combination of his osteopathic, chiropractic, and Eastern modalities to harness better outcomes. Our topic, forward head posture, a condition that affects an increasing number of people. Mobile devices, computers, and just life in general contribute to this condition. I've asked Alex to explain what happens physiologically in forward head posture, and if we have it, how to correct it, and if we don't, how we can avoid getting it. It's challenging for me to have a conversation, a timed one at that, with someone who has such an extensive anatomy background. But Alex, who is calling in from England, will give it a go. Hi, Alex. You there? Hey, Darren. Hi. How are you doing? Hi. Thank you so Good. much for calling in and joining us on All Things Pilates. Good evening from jolly old England, where we're just uh, recovering from the Royal Wedding. Are you still recovering? Um, <laughs> no comment. I think my invitation was lost in the mail. That's the only way I can explain it. It was quite something to see on television, for sure. Absolutely. Alex. Could you describe for me and for my listeners what forward head posture is? Sure. Forward head posture at a very superficial level is, is very observable all around us. You'll see it in people with the head uh, and chin will be thrust forward, the shoulders rounded, the, uh, the thoracic spine, that's the area between the shoulder blades, will be curved, the neck will be what's called extended, and it's a sort of stooped uh, round-shouldered posture. So on the surface, it's pretty ubiquitous and it looks like a pretty simple thing. But actually, when you start delving into it, you can really open a, you know, a can of worms. And, and it really serves to illustrate maybe some of the ways that I look at, at my clients, my clients' health. The human system, uh, human beings are a very complex set of sort of multi-stacked and, and nested systems, including the nervous system, the endocrine system, which deals with the hormones in the body, the respiratory system, the digestive system. And because all these things work so well in, in general, there's the assumption that they're simple and thus people develop very simplistic ideas about them. And this is really, I think, illustrated with forward head posture, the idea that it's purely a, a musculoskeletal situation. It's a purely mechanical situation and that mechanical means alone are enough to redress it. And so hopefully we'll have a chance today to sort of explore that maybe a little more deeply and start looking at, okay, what role is the nervous system playing in this? And what role is psychology playing in this? Uh, how does this uh, structure affect 
our respiratory system, our breathing patterns, even our digestive systems. And I think one of the things that's really imperative to, to look at uh, with, with forward head posture and to understand the fact that this posture of the rounded shoulders, the head and neck thrust forward, is a very deep protective posture of the human body. As human beings, we, we walk around with our soft organs on display in front of us, unlike other mammals, which are quadrupeds, they're very much more protected. We're far more open in our posture, and so we're a lot more vulnerable. And so the closing down, the rounding over, the arms coming in front of the body are all uh, indicative of a, of a protective mechanism. So yes, computers and, and mobile devices uh, contribute to the situation, but I honestly believe the root causes lie within this activation of these deep innate brain circuits, these bodily responses to essentially what is a predator threat that we've now, as we've evolved out of that situation, we carry through these responses to threat and stress, and they still make themselves visible in our bodies in the same way as they you know, would have done to our ancient ancestors. We don't have that kind of threat any longer. Does that mean that this condition potentially is just temporary, or once you have it, you get it for life? I think unless you get to the root cause, it can deepen and deepen and deepen into form. It's like watching a, a train wreck in slow motion. There's an initial response to a stressful situation, which is mediated by the sympathetic nervous system and the adrenal medullary hormones, adrenaline uh, or epinephrine, as it's called in the States, and other hormones. And then there's a chronic phase when you can't extricate yourself from these stresses that are all around you. Um, your body takes on another stance, which is an attempt to let you cohabit with your stressor. So what will happen is that if you don't deal with the root causes and you just look at, say, the structural musculoskeletal situation, you may give some temporary relief, but that person is going to keep activating those protection uh, patterns and mechanisms, and ultimately, that, you know, they won't get out of it. But if you do along with your patient, start to examine and understand perhaps what might be going on at a subconscious level, then they can take control of some of those patterns. They can start to intercede between the unconscious motivations for protection uh, and, and fear-based thinking and start to make more, let's say, cognitive choices, starting to exercise the frontal lobes of the brain to make executive decisions based upon information. Now, now sure, some uh, situations are intrinsically stressful and cause that response, like a near miss on the freeway or something like that. But a lot of the time, these responses are is to something that's not so deeply threatening. And so if we can start to examine the behaviors and the patterns of our daily lives, this thing absolutely does not need to be permanent. Did you all get that? Somebody comes to you and they are not necessarily ready to hear everything you just said. It's just enough for them to stand up halfway straight. Do you start mm. from the outside in structurally before you start dealing with the nervous system and the frontal lobe? I didn't understand that. Could you speak about that? Yeah. In terms of in, in neurologically, there's lots of circuits between different lobes of the brain and different areas of the brain. So there's the deep areas of the brain, for example, the limbic system, which deals with you know, a lot of emotional response and that sort of thing. But there are uh, neuronal circuits which will pass up into so-called higher centers, which allow you, if you can 
let's say, exercise and develop those areas, let's say with a child who will, will go immediately from zero to tantrum and then over the course of normal human development, they're able to hold themselves into a tantrum or, or just completely living that emotional response. And that's the work of the frontal lobes of the brain. That's the work of the higher centers of the brain. And we can all exercise that a little more in our daily lives. When rather than indulging the, the emotion that wells up immediately, if you can kind of get the brain working in a slightly different way, it's like the way I describe it, it's like having a little, little place outside of time. So the information comes in and you've got enough time to step in there and go, okay, do I choose to follow through with this? Do I choose to get angry? Do I choose to shout, scream, throw my, throw my toys out of the pram sort of thing? Do I choose to get road rage? Do I choose to drive real fast behind that guy because he cut me off? Or do I just look at it a little bit more objectively and just say, okay, it's not worth it? That's the, the role of, of some of these uh, higher centers in the brain in, in the way they deal with that uh, emotional content. And it is, it is like having a little place outside. You've got time to not indulge that or to indulge it through choice. So that's what I mean by that. And I forgot the first part of your question. Well, but, um, uh, and, and just to that point, you're hmm. suggesting that people don't go to that reactionary place, that there's a moment there before you make a decision to go off your center. Yeah, there's a, breathe, there's, there's a space there. And the more you explore that, the bigger that space becomes. Then you can, that information can come up and you can make a choice. You know, you might still choose to indulge that, and it might be appropriate to, but there, there is a, an increasing space for you to just say, hang on a minute, let me run through this, this through a different set of filters before we go straight ahead with the action. And, and in terms of the other thing you asked at the beginning, yeah, you don't unload this necessarily full bore onto people, but through the process of conversation, through the process of my consultation, particularly the initial one, and, and the way I will handle that, it, it just gives me the clues as to where, where the little leverage points are. Because, yes, absolutely, if you try to dump all this on someone, you know, the, the shutters <laughs> go down, nobody wants to know. But if you just pick two areas, and then if you're doing some musculoskeletal work, you've got three points, you've triangulated the problem. And that gives you a lot more chance of success than just simply, you know, trying to bully your way down, down one street or trying to overwhelm them with, uh, with information, which I've definitely done, probably continue to do. If we go to the spine, especially from the spine up to the cervical spine where the neck is, for those of us who can just sort of picture the neck, the curves in the higher part, and then the mid-back and then to the low back, when you do have forward head posture, what exactly is happening or developing inside the cervical spine that is pushing it forward? You talked about what's happening in the nervous system and more on some higher planes, but structurally and muscularly, the mm. chest muscles are tight, right? So that's pulling your Correct. shoulders forward. What's happening in the actual bones physiologically when someone just starts to sit into that forward head posture position? Well, you're going to get a lot of the compression of what's called the posterior elements. You're going to, rather than weight bear through the through the vertebral bodies, which are the large sort of chunky load-bearing aspects and the intervertebral discs that sit between them, you're going to start to transfer some of that load towards the back and to the joints of the, of the neck, um, which can lead to, obviously, to wear and tear quite quickly, you know, into that area. It can cause problems 
with the discs that sit between the vertebral bodies themselves. And particularly, you've got seven vertebrae in the neck. And uh, I particularly find problems at about the fifth. So you're counting from the top down, one, two, three, four, five. And then that's where the neck tends to dive forward at that point. It's pulled forward by some of the muscles in the neck, particularly those associated with breathing and what are called the accessory muscles of respiration. So your main breathing muscle, as I'm sure you and a lot of your, you know, your, your clients and listeners know, is, is the respiratory diaphragm. It's like the, the plunger on a syringe, and it's uh, located between the thorax and the abdomen at, at the base of the ribcage area. And so when the command to breathe comes from the brain, that muscle should contract and gently descend. That increases the volume of the thorax, the chest, where the lungs are housed, and that draws air in. Now, when we exercise hard or when we're in a stressful situation, we need to get more oxygen in. So we start to use these accessory muscles. And if you ever watch um, sports, you'll see uh, men and women walking around with hands on hips or hands on the head when they're very, very tired. And what they're trying to do is to the, fix the shoulder girdle, uh, which allows these neck muscles to lift the rib cage, which gets that extra volume of air in. So when you're in a chronically stressed situation you're using these muscles all the time and they're tractioning down they're pulling the neck down and because of the inward curve you mentioned of the neck it's only got that way to go so that curve deepens and deepens that fifth cervical vertebra drops forward drop forward but it is it's pushed down and forward goes out of alignment and the whole neck becomes mechanically less efficient someone who has forward head posture for the most part probably are not uh, using their diaphragm correctly Absolutely. And yeah, definitely. And if you think about any shock situation, think about it or being hit in the solar plexus, you know, it's called being winded. You know, the diaphragm can almost get paralyzed and it's very, very difficult to breathe. And one of the problems that, uh, you know, I and colleagues routinely find with this is that the diaphragm's really not very mobile and it's, it's held in a little bit of a descended position. Not to go too deep into the anatomy, but the heart and the coverings of the heart attached to the top the central tendon of the diaphragm so you imagine if the diaphragm's pulled down and stuck there a little bit then the heart is traction down and if you look at some of the deeper anatomy texts there's a french osteopath called Barral who describes suspensory ligaments of the heart so connective tissue strands that run up from the covering of the heart up the neck and actually to the base of the cranium so they attach to the underside of the skull so then these cardiac suspensory ligaments are being pulled down by the diaphragm which is also dragging the neck down and forward so it's kind of a double triple whammy you know it's, it's a bad situation to to get into but it's not irre, you know irredeemable and then enter pilates and corrective exercises and stretches do you employ pilates or other kinds of resistance training my initial uh, approach is just raising awareness of what's going on. One of my biggest clinical tools I use in this is the post-it note. A little bright pink post-it note just with the word breathe written on it or the word shoulders written on it or something, just a little aid that they can stick on the side of their computer at work or somewhere at home. And every time they look at it, where am I breathing from? Where are my shoulders? So, you know, for a lot of people, that's a good place to start. Then we'll build in, obviously, body work, and I often give people a lot of pec stretches. The Pilates, as you know, I, I hand off to my wife, who's <laughs> far more competent in that field. But, uh, you know, absolutely, Pilates, the genius of Pilates for me uh, and the genius of Joe's method is that it's 
it's a method that treats the whole organism. And this is one of the problems going right back to the beginning. If you've got a very simplistic viewpoint of things, you're going to tend to, to look for very simplistic answers. And people will take Joe's exercises or maybe modified exercises rather like items off a menu and try to treat the thing that they see, which is the head being forward and maybe the rounding of the thorax. But that's missing the point. It's, it's missing the point that all these other systems are involved. And this is where, as I say, the genius of Joe's method comes in, is the fact that the classical Pilates repertoire addresses everything. It addresses the breathing. It addresses the function of the spine and the, all the joints. And in doing so, there's a whole wealth of information going into the body which has beneficial hormonal responses, beneficial neurological responses, so on and so forth. So I think for me with Pilates, I would encourage people not to try to get really prescriptors and say, okay, the shoulders are rounded, let's get you over the barrel a lot or things. I'm not sure that's going to help, but the real power of the method, I think, is in working with the whole of the body and uh, I think working with the full sort of range of exercise and the full repertoire, as you will you know, know 100,000 times better than me. I think that's the way to go rather than this sort of pick and choose, you know, physical therapy version of Pilates, which I'm not a big fan of. Before you pass your patient off to Paige, you touched on briefly about stretching out the pecs. That would just mm -hmm. sort of give an indication to your patient. They can feel, they can literally feel you stretching them because the pectoral muscles and the anterior shoulder is so locked up. So you sort of are preparing them for their Pilates yeah. lesson? And, and giving them the tools, giving them very simple stretches in doorways, you know, using the door frame to stretch through, you know, like the opposite of a chest press machine, really. But little and often, little and often to counteract the, the tendency to roll forward. You know, it's, it's really, really it's amazingly you know, useful. And, you know, I've used techniques, maybe some postural taping using the kinesio tape across the shoulders. So you get someone into a position which is more desirable than where they normally are and gently tape a couple of areas across the upper and mid trapezius muscles. And then when they start to drift, then they, then they get a little bit of biofeedback. They get a pull on the skin. It's like, okay, my shoulders are drifting. My shoulders are drifting. So I love that idea. And if somebody were alone, they couldn't tape themselves. Is there some sort of brace or fastener that is on the market that you would recommend? Something that um, could help them pull their shoulders back, maybe without the same feedback, but just to get that opening feeling. I'm not a big fan of anything, I don't think, that would restrict movement more. I think it's about bringing uh, more natural human balance of natural human movements into their daily routine rather than restricting them further. Because if you're restricting somebody and they're under stress, I mean, that's, that's a pretty tortuous thing. You know, one of the reasons that uh, stress can have an effect on the stomach and cause ulceration is that when adrenaline isn't used up, then the, the adrenaline has to be dumped into the stomach. It's an irritant there. I mean, if you looked at an adrenaline under a microscope, apparently it's a very sharp looking molecule, a very crystalline looking molecule. You know, I think if we can get people to burn off some of this sort of new nervous energy rather than being more restricted, the better. I mean, one thing that I think would be really good for someone who's on their own is getting a um, heart rate variability app. So you can get an app for your Android or your 
iPhone and a little chest strap heart rate monitor. It'll measure what's called heart rate variability, which is the distance between the peaks of each individual heartbeat or a single point on each individual heartbeat. It could be at a peak or the trough. And the more rigid, the more uniform your heartbeats are, that's an indication of a more stressed state. If there's slight variability between the peaks of each individual heartbeat, that's a good indication that the sympathetic nervous system is down a little bit. The sympathetic nervous system, which deals with the fear, fight, flight response, is kind of, you know, taking a bit of a back seat. So that's the way when you're driving or when you're on your own, you have the app up running on your phone, your chest monitor attached to it, you know, just by Bluetooth. And it'll start to tell you, hey, your heart rate variability is dropping, which means you're becoming more stressed. So then you can go, okay, let me check my breathing. Let me check my shoulders. What is it in my environment that's causing me to, to be stressed out? Can I do anything about it? Can I come to terms with it? So I think as a, um, as a tool, using some sort of a, a, a technology like that, as opposed to maybe something that's, you know, more restrictive. Yeah, I think that could be really, really helpful because you want to get to the root of it. And the root of it is your response to your environment. If you don't get behind it, as a a saying that uh, uh, one of my teachers uh, used a lot. If you're not getting to the root of things, you're just rearranging the deck furniture (laughs) on the Titanic. You know, it's just, it's going down and all you're doing is, is fiddling around the edges. Yeah, I think whatever you can do to get into the realm of causality, as opposed to the, you know, the more superficial levels, the better. And you're suggesting that people are not probably aware if they are going into a stressful situation and their heart is starting to move in a stressful way. You're saying that they probably may not know this or aware of it in this app. Give them that information. Yeah, absolutely. They'll be aware of it one level because they may be acting it out they may be getting angry or frustrated or agitated but these physiological changes will somewhat preempt the uh the full blown uh say emotional response so it can be really good to as a way of of catching things before they go full bore as it were it's not like their heart is racing no to feel no, the right. stress so someone wouldn't it, necessarily know Right. Yeah, exactly. It's not a sense of your heart bouncing out of your chest at that stage. It's just because of the way the sympathetic nervous system is working. It's a rigidity in the signal. It's a very, very, very uniform range to your heartbeat. There's no variation in that. And that's a a clinical sign of an increased what's called sympathetic arousal, which is this activation of your part of the nervous system, which, which deals with your mediates your fear, fight, flight response. But I guess over time, your brain will learn, you know, how to start to interrupt this before you're even conscious of it. There used to be that uh, video game, there still is, uh, The Journey to Wild Divine, and you'd use heart rate monitoring and maybe skin conductance as well as a way of moving things on a computer screen. And that was a way to train uh, meditation and relaxation. Um, So this technology, this sort of biofeedback technology has been around for a while, but now with these powerful... um, you know, devices which are part of the problem, right. you can also harness them for good, you know. I know people are going to want to learn more about you, Alex, because you are you have so much knowledge. Do you have a website? They can go check out uh, rehumaning.com. That's all one word, rehumaning. There's an ebook there you can download, a free ebook which outlines some of the sort of things that I'm, you know, we talk about and the way we approach things. 
rehumaning at gmail.com is our email. So if anybody would like to get in touch and um, continue the discussion, then yeah, it'd be, be great to hear from them. Thank you so much for your time, Alex. I look forward to seeing you and Paige again, okay? It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Darren. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope it inspired you. In order that you don't miss any of the great conversations, please subscribe as it will also help others find the show. All Things Pilates is produced and hosted by me, Darian Gold. It originates as a live radio show on KPCA in Petaluma, California. Podcast production is provided by Audio Ephemera. Hey there, I'm Andy, the audio engineer for All Things Pilates. And as cliche as it sounds, I'm also a client. My Pilates practice has strengthened my core and more importantly, given me a new awareness of my body and its abilities. Darian's approach is challenging but fun, and I always leave my sessions feeling energized. But don't just take my word for it. I recently visited one of Darian's classes, and here's what some other students had to say. My name is Suzanne. I've been taking Pilates with Darian since November. It's giving me more connection with the subtle movements of my body. I think she's an excellent teacher because I like the fact that she pays attention to everybody's positioning while they're working, as well as giving little tips that make sense to them. When you're in a class, it's so easy to get lost in the group. Mary, I've been taking with Darian for about a year and a half. It offers me more core stability in my body. As you get older, really important for balance and core stability. When you have your core strong, it changes everything in your body. Thanks, Darian. For more information about my classes, my calendar, Pilates resources, please visit dariangold.com. Until next time, don't forget to eat your salad.